Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 29, we're going to take just a few minutes to review a little bit of what we studied last week, chapters 27 and 28. As I was telling someone earlier, you may want to strap on your seatbelt. We're in for a ride tonight because we're going to try to uh, go through chapters 29 through 32 tonight. So, like, like I said, uh, strap in, hold on. And we're doing that primarily because this whole story from 29 to 32 it has a very intense focus really in that last chapter, chapter 32. But we're going to review a little bit from last week in chapter 27, really from the beginning, Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, it's, we're discussing this before the service tonight. If you want to talk about dysfunctional families, you take a peek at uh, Isaac and Rebecca, Esau and Jacob, I mean, and it just kind of gets worse as it goes along. We'll see that again tonight. But they have this, this whole dysfunctional thing where they have favorite children, and uh, I, I think some of it's tied to Rebecca, you know, receives the prophecy of the Lord at the birth of, or prior to the birth of the two boys, that the older will serve the younger. So she has her favorite, the younger boy, who's the smooth man. And smooth maybe in more than one context, he's the trickster, Jacob. And then Esau, who's the hairy man, the coarse man. Uh, and, but she loves her youngest son, like he's the son of promise, really, in that sense to her. But Isaac totally loves Esau, he's the man's man, you know, like, let's go kill something, let's go hunt something. And so they play these favorites, and it just pits the whole family against one another from the very beginning. And the boys learned the hard lessons that come with that kind of favoritism, that it's that, as I mentioned last week, the seed that we plant that bears the refute of rebellion, deception, and lies, which then opens the door then for anything, as we mentioned. If you can lie, you can do anything. And then you see that with Esau there, as that whole story is wrapping up, he's like, when dad's gone, you're gone. And I'm not talking leaving the house either. So there's that whole thing. And we also see that they're reaping what they sow in their lives. It was true for them. And as their family dynamics unfold, those divisions and deceptions only deepen. And we saw it last week that Isaac goes full-on rebellion to the Lord himself, tries to pass off the blessing and everything, the birthright to Esau, despite what he knew to be true. Esau, of course, he's like, hey, if dad wants it, I'm in. Yeah, I know it's, it doesn't belong to me, <coughs> but he's all in. Rebecca and Jacob are no, no better off. They know that the promise is already theirs. It was given by the Lord. And yet they're going to manipulate and try to make sure that it happens because it seems like things are going awry. 
And how, how true is this for you and I at times when we're in those difficult circumstances of life and we think, this isn't going how it should, so let me fix it for the Lord, right? And the end result is far worse than we really wanted. And this is what happens with Jacob and, uh, and Rebekah. But the reality is, is the Lord can't be fooled. His, he is sovereign. He, we, we can't do anything to thwart the plans of God. He's going to remain faithful to what he said. His promises are true. His word is immutable. And he just, he rolls right through it. This is going to end up, uh, according to God's plan, just in a much messier way for the people involved. And it, it, and it really leads Isaac to not only be deceived in his heart and his mind, but then to be deceived because he can't rightly hear from God. And that's the problem. When we start to deceive, then we can't rightly hear from the Lord on other matters. And we're much easily, more easily deceived ourselves. Isaac learns there at the end of that exchange that it's better to come humbly before the Lord and just say, listen, I know what I want, God, but your plan is so much better because the end result was that he's outed. He's, he's, he's angry and ashamed by what he's done as He's fooled and deceived by Rebecca and Jacob. So it's better to come humbly before the Lord than to have God humble us. It's better for us just to say, your plan's better than to learn the hard lesson. God is going to bring us, his kids, to a place of humility. As chapter 27 closes and 28 begins, Esau really doesn't get the message of his life at this point. He sees that Jacob is being sent off to find a wife from outside of the Canaanites, the people of the land, the ungodly people of the land, and he figures that's the problem. It's the problem is I'm, I'm not doing what mom and dad want me to do, and if I do that, everything's good. So he marries into the family of Ishmael, thinking that if he takes a wife from within the family, everything's going to be great. But what we talked about is that it's not, it's not godly sorrow that provokes him. It's, it's not repentance that provokes him. Rather, it's behavior modification. He's just like, if I do right, I'll be right. And, the, and the, the story continues to unfold that God has always been concerned about the heart, the content of our heart, our outward appearance, the things we can do. They may be great. They may fool some people, but we will never fool God. He knows the content of our heart, and he knows the motivations for why we do things. There's a big, big difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And no amount of outward appearance will counteract or cover up what's in our heart. So we move into chapter 28. Um, as we said, our, our heart attitude is more important to the Lord than the outward obedience. It has to be led with humility and gratitude towards the Lord. Um, we should be watchful. One of the lessons we learn in that is that we should be watchful ensuring that if we're going to push forward in something in a particular way or plan, that we're not forcing something to happen, like I said earlier, that God has already planned, that we're just frustrated with his timing. Now, Jacob leaves, and he has this little sleep on a rock moment and a vision from the Lord, and he really discovers personally for the first time the goodness and grace of God. So on the heels of all this insanity... He's deceived his father. He, he, discover, he doesn't know it yet, but he's never going to see his mother again. 
and he's fleeing for his life, and God in his grace visits him and says, you are the one who I will pass the blessing along to. It was always yours. But he understands that he can have this relationship, that he can have it with the Lord, and it's really no longer, you know, the God of Abraham and Isaac. It's now the God of Jacob. And he believes it for himself. And with the closing of chapter 28, the history of the book of Isaac and Rebekah closes. He would never see his mom. There's no further mention of Isaac except for one sentence in chapter 35 that mentions Jacob and Esau, or Jacob going to meet his dad at the Oaks of Mamre, and then the burial of Isaac, along with Esau there with him. But it's just this, this sad closure. And what's, what's more heartache is that he doesn't really learn his lesson. He's still going to continue to make mistakes, even though he has this great mountaintop experience with God. He is still going to make mistakes. Does it sound like you and me? We can have some incredibly great moments with God. And then in a moment of frustration or anger or fear, we can do some really stupid stuff. But again, if we learn anything from the story, from the history here in Genesis, is that God is faithful no matter how unfaithful we are. He is faithful. He cannot deny who he is. And he cannot deny the word that he's given to his people. So chapter 29 through 32 is the continuation now of the plan of God to fulfill his promise that was given earlier all the way back um, in the beginning of Genesis and then passed on to Abraham, uh, the Savior, uh, one in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Jacob's story now, his history becomes the foundation of the nation of Israel. And this is where we're laying the foundation for the history of Israel as a nation, not just Israel the person, but Israel the nation. And it's also the unveiling now of Jacob's consequences for his deception. So here we are, chapter 29. Hold on, we'll try to read a little bit fast as we go through this. Chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone in the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know the Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. This is like a really one-sided, you know, like, yeah, yes, no. It's, <laughs> they're not impressed by him. Uh, we know him. And, and he's like, uh, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So Jacob leaves Bethel after this great vision. Like I said, he's, he's been, as he describes it, at the house of God. He carries with him this newfound faith and the promised covenant of the Lord. But he's about to enter the dark valley. 
he's about to experience a completely different life because he has been the favored son, the one that the good child, the good son that did the right things, said the right things, was obedient to mom and dad up to a point. Now his life is going to take a dramatic turn. He is out on his own. He's left the security of his family and the community. He's alone in the world with only what he carries with him. And rather than departing with an abundance of riches, as was his right as the, um, the heir, it's almost like he's fleeing like a criminal. And this is the situation that he comes in. So when they see him, they're looking at him. Maybe he's a little dusty, a little dirty. He's nothing special. And this, he's experiencing real life for the first time. I'm nothing special. <laughs> To be sure, God saved him, right? But now Jacob must experience the trials, the testings, and yes, the discipline of the Lord. He needs to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. And there's going to be a whole lot of fear and a whole lot of trembling in the coming days and years. The Lord is about to introduce to him the instrument of his testing and discipline, his crafty uncle Laban, Right? Here we are, verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So he flexes his muscle. He looks at Rachel and he's like, I'll show you how it's done, fellas. He rolls the stone away, waters them. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. He's overcome with emotion. I'm not alone in the world. I found my people. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father, father, verse 12, and that he was Rebecca's son. And she ran and told her father. She has probably heard the stories from Uncle Laban, her, or from Daddy Laban. Man, you would never believe what happened in our family when this guy, Isaac, sent his servant, and we, wealthy, super rich dude, and we sent a family member off to go with it. So this, this whole thing is playing, playing out. This whole memory is coming to fruition. Then he, related to Lab then he related to Laban all the things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So as in the previous chapters, Rebecca said, you know, go for a few days. It's, it's already a month now. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be your, your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and faith, face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Now, this is a perfect example of lust gone awry. <laughs> He's about, all about the physical form. He's like, woo, I will marry that in a heartbeat. I don't care what the cost. He has abandoned now the mountaintop experience. He has not sought the Lord. He's not in, inquired of the Lord what he has for him. He's like, yes, I will buy that. Why? Because he has nothing. He's been there a month. He's probably been helping out. But now, perhaps like, hey, um, it's good you're here, but you probably need to do some work. And what Laban was, you know, probably aware of what was going on between him and Rachel. 
the little love looks and everything else, he's like, I got the plan just for you. For my mother, I would not make such a deal. And, and so he foists this deal off on, on uh, Jacob. Now, Jacob does. He is obeying the commands of his father and his mother and of the Lord, right? He goes to the house of Laban and his, he finds his future wife, but he finds a lot more than he bargains for. As I mentioned, I'm sure Laban had not forgotten the encounter with Isaac's servant, right? There's a little larceny, actually a lot of larceny in his heart by this time now. And he's like, wow, this this kid is probably loaded to the gills. I got to figure out how to get my hooks in him. And he begins this conniving process. He misses no opportunity. Welcome into the home and lay the trap for Jacob. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my time is completed that I might go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him and Jacob went into her. So mind you, he's pretty crafty. He chooses uh, an evening wedding so that this can culminate in the darkness, right? He's, he's, He's smart here. And it says in verse 24, Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is have you done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me, says the deceiver. Right? Reaping and sowing. He is getting it in spades now. Uh, he is going to pay dearly for this. God is disciplining those whom he loves. He's allowing the natural course of his life that is now abandoned a pursuit and a love for God, and he's going to, let's see how this plays out for for your life. But I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you in this. But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service, which you shall serve me for another seven years. Right? Jacob did so in completed week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also. Indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. Not the previous sweet seven years that seemed like but a day. It's hard. He was once the deceiver, now he is the deceived. And it's like that whole thing we, we talked about, we're going to mention it again. Our sin looks worse on someone else, right? And this is absolutely what's happening. It, it looks bad. He's like, this ain't right. And God's like, you're right, it wasn't. <laughs> As his father before him, Jacob is led by his emotions, right? He's just happy. He's not thinking about anything. And he's blinded by the deception, blinded to the deception of Laban. He's lying, he's conniving. They have borne the bitter fruit. This begins the story of how God would begin to change young Jacob. Jacob is, is the heir to the promise, the blessing of the Lord. But now, what the Lord is seeking to do is to subdue his heart, to bring it to a place of humility and brokenness. But, unfortunately, Jacob's difficulties don't end there. He will soon be guilty of the very thing his parents did to him and his brother, as mentioned between him and Leah and Rachel. Verse 31, now the Lord saw Leah was unloved. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, 
because the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So he named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, now this, is, this time my husband will come become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son this time and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. And then she stopped bearing so again, same song, second verse, right? He, Jacob's doing the same thing that his mother and father did. The same game of favoritism, the heartache he experienced, he is now imposing on his own family. And that's really uh, this, this whole idea that the habits and sins that we see in our parents or those who are influential in our lives, those with great influence, they often become our own, good or bad, good or bad. This is, this is why if you've, uh, if you've ever taught kids before the phrase, more is caught than taught, kids will catch or observe what you are doing and they will learn more readily from that than whatever you will say. Very true in this case. If there's one thing that we can learn from this first part of Jacob's life is that we must daily and with humility surrender to the leading of the Lord through his spirit and his word. If we don't, we will likely repeat the patterns of life modeled for us that are hurtful and harmful. Secondarily, as we consider the beginning of Lee of life, we learn what is mentioned in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Regardless of what our family or what the world does to us, the Lord is ever watchful, isn't he? He is looking over us. He is concerned for us, his kids. He has a great love for those who are in those lowly and humble places. And he has grace towards Leah. He has kindness towards those who cry out to him, and his justice, he says, is not far off. Do we believe that in the world we live today? As we see the craziness and the, the conflicts and the controversies, are we still convinced that God is for us, though it seems like the world is against us? Chapter 30, here we go. The sons of Jacob. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She says, give me children or just let me die. And he says, wait a second, am I God? I am not. Your argument is not with me. I'm doing my part. You see, bitterness and jealousy are lousy motivators, aren't they? And they always be contrary to the work of the Spirit. As we mentioned before, these two are only a couple of the many and destructive works of the flesh or the foolish actions of our human nature when we live apart from our surrender to Christ. It's almost like Rachel is mimicking her great-grandmother-in-law, Sarah, when Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham. And he looked at her and he, how that turned out. Look how that turns out, that whole mess, right? 
So she says, verse 3, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her too, I too may have children. So she gave him her maid as Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Now this must have been especially painful, right? He's like, who am I? God, this is not my problem. And then it's proven to be true. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she named Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with a mighty wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Who was doing the wrestling here? That's what I'm wondering. Like if I'm Bilhah, I'm like, who had this child? Who carried this, right? Not you. But again, it reveals the content of her heart at the moment. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. This whole mess is just getting worse. Like this, you, this is Dr. Phil or um, Jerry Springer all mixed together, right? <laughs> Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she, <laughs> fortunate, now that, that cracks me up. It had, fortune had nothing to do with it. She named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Now in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of, some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Now, this is an interesting little piece. This is, the, you know, the, the whole uh, idea of um, false natural remedies uh, as used for aphrodisiacs. That's what they're talking about, mandrakes, right? So <laughs> Leah, Rachel wants the mandrakes thinking somehow that it, it's the mandrakes. That'll fix the problem, right? <laughs> Not realizing she's standing against God. And this is, again, we do this, don't we? We like, oh, I know what'll fix this. And it's usually never in line with God's word. So she does this. Leah consents to it. And here we go. Therefore, he may lie with you tonight and return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me. For I have surely hired you with my son's mandrake. That's just a lovely, like, so romantic, right? right? I bought you. <laughs> and uh, doesn't it make you wonder what Jacob is thinking? He's like, okay, I am not getting into this one. I'm not messing with it. Like, I've already made a big enough mess. I'm just going with it. So he lay with her that night. Verse 17, God gave heed to Leah and she keeved and, and conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So again, the emphasis here is that all this craziness has nothing to do with mandrakes or, or even right attitudes. It's purely the grace of God. Verse 18, then Leah said, God has given me wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. 
she named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. And that, that last verse right there, that's not realized until many years later in the giving of Benjamin. But notice this. Notice what sons are born to each of these women, particularly to Rachel and Leah. And so to, to Rachel is born Naf, Dan, Naphtali, Joseph, and then chapter 35 is Benjamin. But she has three natural biological children. To Leah is born Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, and then Dinah. Seven of these are natural children. The names of these sons are, are often completely not named after this great view of God. It has to do with this conflict in the family. How would you like to be raised in that kind of environment where your name only reminds you that your parents never got along? And, and this is what's happening. But there's glimmers of hope in this. But despite these two women taking matters into their own hands, God is still demonstrating his kindness to Leah, the unloved one. Not only would Leah bear seven natural children, her, Donna, her daughter Dinah being one of them, of all the sons of Jacob, later be known as Israel, the most notable are descendants of Leah, Judah and Levi. Out of those two, the foundation of Israel is built upon the nation. The kings, the Messiah, the priestly line, the worship of God. But God still does not forget Rachel. It was evident that God would give her Joseph. He would use Joseph to save the nation Israel. And then Benjamin later on would be the one tribe that would join Judah in the south at the divided kingdom. Setting all these historical facts aside, um, kind of looking at spiritual things, one thing I think is evident is the characteristics of Jacob's family is that there's division and strife. Why? And this is tied to what we learned last week and also what we've been hearing on Sunday mornings regarding worldly or carnal wisdom, is that as, as people, as we as we seek to act out of what we think is right, all sorts of messes are made. But when we are seeking God, when we are yielding to his spirit, then we come into line and our lives come into line. And we will eventually see this tonight at the end here. God is not done with the story of Jacob. Verse 25 now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away so that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you and let me depart. For you yourself know my service which I have rendered you. But Laban said to him, if it now pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. A little witchcraft going on there. He continued, name me your wages and I will give it. But he said to him, you yourself know that I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased to a multitude and the Lord has blessed you when it, wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So Laban, he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. 
If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flocks. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black among the lambs, and their spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come back uh, concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lands, if found with me, will be considered stolen. And Laban said, good, let it be according to your word. So he removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it and all the black ones among the sheep. And he gave them in the care of his sons. And he put a distance of about three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So they've got this whole deal going on. It's going to get a little messy here. Verse 37, then Jacob took fresh poplar rods, rods of poplar and almond and plane trees, and peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white which was in, in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs, where the flocks came to drink, and they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods inside of the flock in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So Jacob, he, he's recall, recalling the promises of, of God. He's, he's thinking, you know, I, I got to get out of this place, right? I, I, I've got I've to go back to where I came from. And, but I've got nothing to go home with. I mean, I have, I have all these kids. I've got 11 kids but I have no means to support them. He's received the blessing of provision and descendants, um, but he hasn't received this, the land. And having endured 14 years of service to Laban with nothing but 11 children as a possession, he wants the freedom. Now, Uncle Laban is a greedy dude. <laughs> and he's like, wait a second, I cannot lose my cash cow. <laughs> And so he's like, um, how about we go with a plan here? Now, I, I think it's notable that Jacob does, again, does not inquire of the Lord. I mean, he, he enters into this agreement without any counsel from the Lord. But Laban, he's greedy. He doesn't want to lose this. He knows that his wealth is increased with, with Jacob present. And he thinks, I, you know, I'll just milk this for a little while longer. And the question before Laban is, how do I convince Jacob to stay? And the question before Jacob is, how do I trust the Lord? <coughs> how do I return to the family in Canaan with no earthly means <coughs> to support my wife, wives and children? And again, both these men, they're making decisions based upon earthly wisdom. What will give me the greatest financial return on my investment? There's nothing noble about this. And both will pay dearly <coughs> for their lack of seeking the counsel of the Lord. Verse 13. <coughs> Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there 
and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not <coughs> know what your life will be like tomorrow. I'm sorry, I'm reading from James, by the way. Sorry, that, I forgot to mention that. <coughs> so you're, you're seeing them wander off the path here, and this relates to uh, a spiritual principle here. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. So the whole idea is that these men are going to go to a, a city and make a great profit. The issue is not making plans for the future. The issue has to do with the attitude, the heart towards the Lord. Making plans without examining our motivations, without surrendering them to God. I certainly have been guilty of this on more than one occasion. And it has rarely turned out for my good. Oh, thank you. I even have a cough drop in my mouth. I don't know what's going on. How do we do when we make plans? Are, are we people who prayerfully seek the Lord? Do we, we seek his counsel through his word? Do we seek the counsel of, of godly people? Compare that counsel to the, to the expressed will of God in his word. And then in, in humility say, Lord, I think this is where you would have me go. I believe this is, is lines up with your word. If it be your will, let's go do it. But this is not what these guys are doing. So God is not done teaching Jacob the cost of deception or lying. Um, he receives the full measure of the Lord's discipline and, until he really is pushed into this place where he must trust the Lord. He's got no other resources. What, what, is, what is God wanting to teach us? Is, is, is it going to take us to a place where we've got no other options left? Because that's where chapter 31 picks up. Now, Jacob heard, verse 1, the words of Laban's son, son saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and for what belonged to our father, he has made all his wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Laban's treachery toward Jacob is repaid many times over. But Jacob is worn out as welcome through his deceiving and his craftiness. I mean, he was a hardworking guy, but I mean, he's working against his own family in essence. And it's not lost on Laban. And Laban's sons now are like, this dude is robbing dad. And, and he's not going to get away with it. And Laban's like, you know what? I think I've been hornswoggled. And we've got to fix this now. So it's, it's getting ugly. And uh, God, in his mercy then, reveals himself once again to Jacob. Reminds him, like, are you done yet? Are you done running? Are you done trying to figure this life out on your own? It echoes Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. <laughs> and Jacob is not experiencing that right now. He forgot all those teachings. He'd failed to be kind and truthful. He'd failed to trust the Lord, to seek him for understanding and wisdom. Jacob had been wise in his own eyes. And the truth of the matter is that fear often ruled him. So it appears that Jacob is remembering what God said to him back in chapter 28. Behold, I am with you. This is in verse 15. And I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. And the Lord tells him, trust me. This is what God is saying to you and I. Trust me. No matter what's going on, no matter how difficult it is, whether you've been wronged or not, trust me. How easy is that? Especially when you've been wronged. As, as my wife said, it's simple, but not easy. <laughs> it's simple, but not easy. He says, trust me. I promised land, descendants, and provisions. I'm keeping my word. Follow me again back to the land of Canaan, which is really that whole meaning of Canaan, that place of rest. To be low, subdued, or humbled. And later on, it's associated with that land of rest and referenced in Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, this is what Israel hoped for, the land of milk and honey, the land of rest. It's what we look forward to someday, a time of rest. God says, trust me. Trust in his promises and seek him for his wisdom as we live for his glory in this present wicked world. Amen? Wherever we find ourselves, he's there. Whatever circumstance personally we are in, he is there. He has not forgotten us. And when we come to him with humility and say, man, I've, I've messed things up. I'm willing to own my part. God says, great, I'm right here with you. I am for you. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field. And he said to them, I see your father's attitude that is not friendly toward me as formerly. <laughs> really, I wonder why. But the God of my father has been with me. This is true. You know that I served your father with all my strength. Eh, mostly. <laughs> He's mostly dead. Um, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. Now this isn't part of the story that we're privy to. Uh, but this comes back as like, it wasn't just the, the known deception. It was this ongoing battle that just raged on and on and on. It says, but Jacob is at least acknowledging there in the last half of verse 6, however, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, if he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. 
Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flocks were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and spot mottled. For I have seen all that has Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, making him remember now as he fled, as he had that dream, Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending. He said, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, that place of remembrance, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. And Rachel and Leah said to him, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Then Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all his livestock on all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered in Padamaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. Again, we get this idea, the background, uh, a filling in of the picture and the story of these trials of Jacob, of all the things that he was guilty of, he's experiencing twofold. The discipline of the Lord, breaking him down. Though he had much before he left, he leaves with little, and now he's in this place where he had nothing, but now he has much. But what value is it to him? As he took advantage of Esau, he was taken advantage of. As he lied and deceived, he was deceived by lies. And again, as I said before, he's coming to the understanding that his sin looks much worse on Laban. Has, has the Lord allowed that to happen in our lives? To open our eyes? Because it's going to get more, as we get a little farther, it's going to become more apparent that God is trying to break this man. And not in the sense of crush him, to destroy him, but to break him as, uh, as a cowboy would break a green horse. To subdue it to a place of humility and usefulness. And God reveals to Jacob that he has been guarding and providing and protecting him despite Jacob's foolishness. It was his grace. Jacob is gathering this. It was God's grace that had done this thing, not Jacob's cleverness. Yet even in this, he is still fearful. He knows what God has said, but he brings it before his wives, right? Like, hey, what do you guys think? He is definitely not exercising this stellar example of leadership. And then his bad behavior is modeled by his young bride, Rachel, as she steals the household idols 
she couldn't trust the Lord any more than Jacob could. She's, she's got a plan B. She's got the security blanket. You know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, clearly my husband has not been following the Lord over here, and maybe these, these idols of wood and stone and precious metals will have some, some value. She wanted a visible source of protection, even if it could be hidden. Verse 27, when it's told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and he pursued him a distance of seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Oh, this, is the, this is the pot calling the kettle black, right? <laughs> like, it's just going back and forth. Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and, the, and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre? There was none of that going to happen, Right? <laughs> This was, you know, a prideful lie at the very best and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters, right? He's trying to pull on his heartstrings. Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away and become, and because you have longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my God's? Then Jacob replied to Laban. So Jacob now finally seems like he gets his spine, right? He's realizing, man, I, I, I got to own it to a degree, but also I can't, I can't put up with your nonsense. And <laughs> then Jacob replied to Laban, being honest, because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Well, Laban has as much admitted it, right? Like they're mine. And he said, he's going to say it again later. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our own kinsmen. Point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. Now, this is a key point. He's making this incredibly rash vow. He's again not, he's received this great command from the Lord. Trust me, I've got your back. I'm covering for you. But he has completely lost his mind in anger. He just makes this vow. And this, is, this has some really serious consequences. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and in the tents of the two maids. I find it interesting they all have separate tents now. So I hope you didn't miss that, right? They are not sharing bedrooms, right? Not at all. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel saddle and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent but did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of a woman is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household idols. I mean, here's a smart guy. <laughs> At least he's like, All right, I'm not messing with that. That could end really badly for me, right? So I'll, great, and he walks off. Jacob says, verse 36, became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? This is this 
righteous indignation as if that were possible with Jacob at this point. What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? So hear it, so set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may be decided between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was by the day, by day the heat consumed me, and frost by night, and my sleep fled from, fled from my eyes." These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. He's done. He's seeing things perhaps a little more clearly. As I said, Laban is accusing him. But even, even in his deception, Jacob continued to be a hardworking man. There was, a, there was a part of his character that was still intact. As it said, I mean, even, even when it wasn't his fault, he took responsibility <clears throat> but Laban won't have it. As I mentioned, there's this underlying story as well about the household idols. Rachel has taken them, perhaps as, maybe to get at her father, but also as a, as a comfort, like a backup plan. And, and, and Jacob makes this insane vow that right there, he has now placed the woman he loved in danger. I, can, I think... There's been many times, you know, Sam and I talk about these uh, in, in good ways where decisions, rash decisions that, that I've made over the years. And she's so gracious. I'm honestly super gracious towards me. She always says, you know, I don't think any of them turn out bad. I'm like, God has given you a short memory. <laughs> but we need to be very careful that even when we're right, that we guard our hearts. Even when we're right, we ought to guard our hearts. Because we can create a whole series of messes that we have no intention. God's grace was sufficient for that moment. He spared Rachel. Now, it was, granted, it was by Rachel's deception, but that was still God's grace. So here they are, and Laban's response, verse 43, then Laban replied to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom you have born, whom they have born? So he's not even ascribing them as the result of Jacob. So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it <clears throat> uh, uh, Aram Yegar Sahadutha, 
but Jacob called it Galead. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galid and Mizpah. For he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar for me to me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal, and they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose and he kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. So what we see here is Laban knows he is beaten. He's received this word from the Lord. Listen, that's my boy. Don't touch him. But he's already kind of committed. He's got this whole host of people, this little army following him. He's in for a penny, in for a pound. And he, he still approaches and he gets a sound rebuke. And rather than say, you know what? I am a jackal. I have robbed you six ways from Sunday. Nope, nope. He is going to play the part of the injured victim. That's what he's going to do. He's like, you know, listen, these are my children. I own all this stuff, right? But I am super gracious, I'm going to be really kind. I'm going to let you have them. And furthermore, I'm the peacekeeper. Let's make a treaty. But it's not, it's not an honest treaty. Really, what the words here are saying, he's really saying, listen, you believe in this God, good. He's got his eye on you. And trust me, when you step out of line, he's going to squash you like a bug. I find it interesting because for years, I understood Mizapah, uh, you know, have you ever seen the little Mizpah coins, you know, break them in half? And, like this really sweet thing. But that's not the context of this passage, right? It's anything but sweet. It's like a memory of strife, division, anger, bitterness. There's nothing good and sweet about that. It's like the Lord is watching over you and I hope he gets you. Right? I'm saving face. He says, God says, I can't harm you, so let's agree to disagree. Notice at no time does he claim to be a follower of the Lord. He always says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, your father, but never my Lord. And, and, and I think that's testified really uh, because of his idols, right? He, he has departed, though there was a foundation He's departed from that foundation. Really, what we see is this picture of a worldly religious person, a, a, a godless person, but as 2 Timothy says, uh, but realize this in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient, the list goes on. Verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So Laban is like, the, again, the precursor to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's got this air of righteousness about him, but he's rotten to the core. 
So Jacob is free. Free from his lies, free from the worldly influences of Uncle Laban. No longer does he have to live in fear of Laban. However, however, there's a bigger challenge yet ahead. He must still face the fear that drove him from his home, from the land of promise. Chapter 32. Ooh, got to speed up. Verse 1, now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. He said this before. So he named that place uh, Mahanaim. Butchered that one. As Jacob leaves the fear of Laban behind, he's confronted with his older fear of Esau. But God sends this visible reminder of his protection. He's like preparing him preparing him for what he is going to have to face personally, inwardly. In essence, he's, it's, it's, it's a foreshadowing of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know where I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is word in my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hands upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. He's getting a little taste of this. The Lord knows the weakness of Jacob. He knows the weaknesses of our past. He knows what he wants to free us from. And, and, and his word is full of reminders that his goodness and his grace is waiting there for us. That he is before us and behind us and on either side. He's given us abundant reminders of his eternal perfect protection and provision. The greatest of them is Jesus, our advocate, our defender. Verse 3, then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, thus you shall say to my lord Esau. <laughs> Boy, his language has changed. Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban. <laughs> I'm just making it all sound nice. And stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord that I might find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and furthermore, he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to me, your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and my mother's and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. 
Here we see the confessions, the beginning confessions of a broken and contrite heart. He's confronted with the worst case scenario. All my deception now is coming back. I thought I had left it behind. I thought the lesson was over. He's come to an end himself. There's no one else to trust and no one but God who is trustworthy. And that's not a bad place to find yourself. It's the hard road. It's not the pleasant road to get there. It certainly wouldn't be God's chosen road for us, his, his first love for us. But when we arrive there, it's the best place to be. He cries out to the Lord. He so badly wants to control the situation. And he thinks he has the wealth in his hands. And so in the coming verses, he offers what he hopes is will appease his brother, not realizing that God has already made the way. He, even though he quotes these things, that God is going to be with him and protect him, he still can't quite get his heart to come in line with it. Have you been there? I know I have. Verse 13, so he spent the night there. Then he selected him from what he had with him, a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. He delivered in the hand of his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on before me and put a distance between droves. He commanded the one in front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when he finds you, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with a present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. Now, he, he is still trying, making an effort to control things. But there is some wisdom here, and it's mentioned in Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. He knows the mess he's left behind. And notice the words that he uses. Of Esau, my Lord. Of himself, your servant. Right? And he is sending this ridiculous gift ahead of him if nothing else, hoping that it would buy him out of way. But, but there is wisdom in this. Uh, as I've grown in my relationship with the Lord, um, this proverb has proven true so many times. And though at times I've been very afraid, and, and though at times I've maybe you've been in the right, those humble and gentle words... Uh, spoken really um, from the love of the Lord were a blessing to my soul, even when the circumstances didn't turn out the way I wanted them to. 
I can tell you from my experience, um, Sam is a wonderful example to me in this. During one of the darkest times of my life, as a believer, running from the Lord, um, completely selfish, the Lord used her to speak to me in my life. And it was on the off-ramp of Gleason Street, just up the highway. See, at that point in my life, I was, I was full of frustration because I had made this great plan, laid it all out, made this bargain with God. Uh, he wasn't part of the bargain. It was just me. Uh, and he was not getting with the program, and all those things were coming down around my head. And I, now I had just abandoned everything. God was not agreeing to the plan for my life. You, have you ever done that? My life. <laughs> I, I, I don't recall that being part of the agreement between Jesus and me, but we do it. And, and during that time, Sam had tried many things to encourage me gently with words of encouragement um, to the best of her abilities. I mean, she incredibly gracious, but I was not having it. I, I, have you ever been in that place where you'd rather just wallow in your anger and bitterness and frustration? Like, man, it feels good to be just angry, bitter, right? Have you ever heard the phrase, bitterness is the poison pill that we take and wait the other, for the other person to die from, <laughs> right? That's what happens. So, I mean, I'm just like, all y'all are a mess and I'm, I'm, I'm good, <coughs> But Sam was trying to encourage me through this. And in that moment, sitting there on the Gleason Street off-ramp, Sam just, she just received this word from the Lord. And the timing and the way she delivered it was from God. She said in this very soft and, and, and a very tearful voice, because I know I was frustrating the tar out of her. And she said, the Lord is showing me that I have to love him more than I love you. Now, at first, I did not take that well, <laughs> which revealed what was going on in me. What do you mean, love God more than love? Now, when those thoughts came out of my mind, it was like Lord saying, now see. See where you've come. See where this has led you. Of course, she's supposed to love me best and first. And that, that really began, that was the beginning of a change in heart. I mean, I really could see my sin for the first time as it was. That was that gentle word. Moving on, verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And this is the culmination of all these chapters. Gosh, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit long. Bear with me. Um, we're going to race. So, so that <clears throat> when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his eye. Thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go before the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not go unless you bless me. Then, so he said to him, what is your name? That's key. What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall long, no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and, they have, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, what is that you ask? Why is that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he had 
said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him, and just as he crossed over the Penuel, he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of his hip. Notice in verse 24 how it reads, and a man wrestled with him, Jacob. It wasn't the other way around. It's not like Jacob saw this guy and said, let's get it on. The guy came to him and wrestled with him. Jacob wasn't seeking this guy. This man, no, this man was seeking him. And who is it? The pre-incarnate Savior. Jesus is seeking him and he wrestles with him. He wants to overcome this attitude of his heart. And Jacob's declaration in verse 30 confirms that he knows who this is. He says, I have seen God and live to tell about it. But the story is really about God. From chapter 1 to chapter 32, the story has been about who? It's been about God. God is always seeking the lost, isn't he? He is always in the business of bringing the prideful to a place of humility. He's seeking the loss, especially his kids who have wandered away, Jacob being one of them. As, J as he said to Jacob, he says to you, me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always. I came to seek and save the lost. See, Jesus is subduing this prideful, fearful heart of this child. And in verse 25, when it says he saw that he had not prevailed in me, it's not that it really could read, it appeared. It gives the appearance like this is an even match, but this is no even match. It, this is God's patience, right? This is Andre the Giant with a two-year-old, right? How cute. You know, hold on to my leg, wear yourself out, <laughs> right? It's the kindness and grace of God, the mercy of God. And because then what he does, he just touches his hip, fights all over. This is the patience and mercy of God, the love of God towards one of whose kids is just like, you're not going to win. And, and God says, I'm going to win. I just wish you wouldn't fight so hard over it. This was patiently restrained power. That's what's happening today. The world may say, as the scripture says, oh, it's, it's just as it's been with the forefathers, it's going to continue to be eating and drinking and marrying, all this kind of stuff. It's just going to keep going. No, God is being patient. Not wishing what? That any should perish. He could easily have done more but the Lord's love is patient, it's kind, it's not arrogant, and in fact seeks the welfare of his children. Amen? And he commands us to be that way. As the wrestling match ends, Jacob pleads with the Lord for a blessing. 
Again, I think we miss that in the language. I know I have for years. Just reading through and studying this, came across this. This is Hosea 12, 3 through 5. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, speaking of Jacob. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. It wasn't like he was demanding. He's just saying, please, I got nothing else. I need you. That's where God wants us to be. I got nothing else. I just need you. I'll be content with you. Up to this point in his life, Jacob thought his enemy was Esau. But just like we heard this last Sunday, he learns that the real enemy is the guy that he looks in the mirror at every day. Right? The person that we look at in the mirror is often our worst enemy. It's the deceitful, prideful, and under-surrendered man of the flesh. It is the desperately sick and sinful person inside that keeps us from the freedom that is in Christ. He asks him, what is your name? And shamefully, Jacob has to tell him, I'm the trickster. I'm the deceiver. And it's in that place that God says, now, now you understand. Now you are willing to admit what your life has really been about. It's been about you. Now you're worthy to receive a new name. When we come to that place and says, I got nothing else. All I've got is you. God says, that's great. Who are you? I'm just a needy beggar. God says, perfect, I can work with that. Now I I can make you a new creature. And he calls Jacob Israel, the God who rules or the one who rules over me. And then he receives in his body a gift. Now we might not always see it as a gift. He receives a constant reminder that the Lord rules over him in a good way, that he surrendered his life. See, whatever physical issue Paul had, it was enough for him to ask the Lord to remove it. However, the Lord said his grace was relief enough. Jacob now has this physical reminder of how much God loved him. Some of us carry some of those scars, don't we? Outwardly, inwardly. But we know, man, I know God was merciful to me. Could have been so much worse. That little scar... That's nothing compared to what I deserved. How much God loved him. How much God does love us. Enough to come down in physical form and fight for the sake of his children. To bear in his body the reminders of his goodness so that when we would look on him, we would remember. That's one of the things I love about communion. It's that reminder of the cost of my salvation. Jesus does it, only this time he accepts those physical wounds. His grace can overcome our natural human inclinations and sins if we will but come to him in humility. This is the great and underlying message of the chapters. The Lord is relentless in his pursuit to make his children holy, to make them set apart for his purposes, for his glory. And his discipline is sure, 
but his kindness is greater. Amen? Psalm 103, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. We are treasures in earthen vessels so that the surpassing, this is 2 Corinthians 4, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And I pray that, that I would recognize this, that we would recognize this more consistently. Are we going to get it right perfectly? No, because here's the funny part is, his name is Israel now. But for the rest of his life, he will still be called Jacob twice as many times than he was called Israel. Why? Because just like you and I, he's still packing around a dead guy. And that's why God says, you gotta, gotta come to me how often? Daily. Pick up your cross, nail the dead guy to it, and walk in the spirit, amen? Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.